want to invite you to turn your Bibles now to the book of Acts. As we continue our study in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We have been going through this book in the past couple of months, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are now at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is the response of the people to the message of Peter. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 47. The text of the Word of God reads, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, what a blessing it is to hear your word. And we ask God that you would continue to teach us as we look into it. May you open the eyes of our heart, grant to us understanding, illumine our minds, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Replacements for the church have often lured people away from the blessings of God's church, and that includes your local gym. In a New York Times article entitled, quote, When Some Turn to Church, Others Go to CrossFit, dated 27th of November, 2015, Allie Hubberly 27-year-old education consultant in Boston, wakes up every morning at 4.45 a.m. to go to her CrossFit gym. When she was looking for an apartment, she only looked at apartments close to her gym. Allie says, quote, CrossFit is family, laughter, love, and community. I can't imagine my life without the people I've met through it, unquote. And that's something you hope would you would hear about the church, and yet Allie speaks in the same terms about her gym. Greg Glassman, the co-founder of CrossFit, says, quote, We're the stewards of something. We're saving lives and saving a lot of them. 350,000 Americans are going to die next year from sitting on the couch. That's dangerous. The TV is dangerous. Squatting isn't, unquote. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you like to hear that from people in the church, providing a sense of community, providing a sense of friendships, providing a sense of love? Isn't it interesting that they believe that they are saving lives, that they are doing something that is very important, that they're a steward of something? Isn't it interesting that this young lady desires 
more than anything else, even to the point of waking up at 4.45 in the morning in order to go to CrossFit. Well, God's desire is that we find that sense of community, that find that sense of love and blessing, not through our local gym, not through our workplace, not through some team, or not through some extracurricular activity. But His desire is that we find that sense of community and love and learning and have a sense of great purpose in what He has called the church. It is the church that is uniquely blessed by God, and it is the church that every Christian is called to exercise their God-given gifts, their God-given talents, in the building of, of the body of Christ called the church. And today we will be looking at the very first Christian church, the very first Christian church as we view the response of the people to the preaching of the Apostle Peter. Now, by way of review... When we looked at the first chapter of Acts, we saw there, of course, it began that Jesus had already been resurrected from the dead, and he spent 40 days with hundreds of people that we were told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, hundreds of people appearing to them, and he teaches, encourages, and he shows them many proofs of his life and resurrection, and he commissions them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And after 40 days, Jesus ascends into heaven, and the apostles in the next 10 days choose a successor to Judas, because Judas had betrayed the Lord, committed suicide, and they chose Matthias. Then in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes The Holy Spirit comes with a thunderous sound. He baptizes them into the body of Christ as was promised in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. And the Jews at the Feast of Pentecost, of which there were likely hundreds of thousands at the Feast of Pentecost, hear them in their own language and they were astonished, saying, what does this mean? while others were mocking them for being drunk. And Peter answers their charge by simply stating that it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. Being drunk on this third hour of the morning is something that they are not. In fact, typical Jew wouldn't even have their first meal until around noon on a day of the feast or on a Sabbath. But this, he says, is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This was what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and we look in chapter 2, verse 17 on, and he speaks of this as being in the last days. We looked at that idea of the last days, meaning the end times, and it is the inauguration. These are the last days. For the past 2,000 years, what he means by the last days, these last times, these last, this last period is what he is referring to. That term refers to the messianic age, and he says that Joel is what has been promised prophesied has ushered in the inauguration of this messianic age and the countdown clock has begun. The Messiah will come and we looked at the end of the prophecy and we see that he will come again and there will be a great and glorious day when he will come with judgment, judgment on that great day of the Lord, on that great day of the Lord. And the point being found in verse 21 of chapter 2, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, the Messiah has come. This is the messianic age that has come. This is what is happening, and God has shown you a sign, and there will be a day of judgment. So today is the day to call upon the Lord, because this is what Joel spoke of in his messianic prophecy. And so the question would come in naturally, who is the Messiah And Peter answers that beginning in verse 22, and he says, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene is the Messiah. He was attested to you by God, by signs and wonders and miracles performed among you, and yet by both God's predetermined plan and his foreknowledge, you, he says to the Jews, crucified the Messiah. But he says, Jesus is not dead. He says, Jesus is not dead. In fact, God raised him up from the dead, and he quotes Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16. It was predicted even by the psalmist David, King David, who wrote Psalm 16, 
who wrote about how Jesus would say that he was the one, and this was a reference to Jesus, where his body would not go into decay, his body would not be found there. In fact, he shows that in the following verses, as we looked at, in Peter points out it is not David who is speaking of himself because David's still dead. David is in the tomb, but Jesus is not. God raised him up. Chapter 2, verse 32, he says, Jesus ascended into heaven. He was exalted at the right hand of God. He received and sent the Holy Spirit. And he quotes Psalm 110, which says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And the person who is the Messiah is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And he concludes his message by saying this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The evidence has been presented The indictment has been made. The verdict has been rendered. It is guilty of crucifying the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The very Messiah that they had been looking for, yearning for, that had been prophesied in Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 59, and so forth. And here in our text today, we see the response of the people who listened to Peter's sermon, his sermon today in which he continued on, and we see the very first church converts, and we see the very first church fellowship. So, the response, we begin in verse 37, the first Christian church converts, verse 37, and when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They were pierced. Literally, the word means stabbed to the heart. They were convicted by the Spirit of God. Why? Because number one, Peter lays out for them, the Messiah was crucified. They, secondly, were responsible. And three, the judgment of God was coming. Verse 35, make your enemies a footstool for your feet, the prophecy says. They were in deep trouble. They were responsible for crucifying the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And looking forward to the Messiah was deeply in the Jewish mind, was deeply ingrained within them. And they were guilty of executing their own hopes and their own dreams for a Messiah. They knew and they understood far better than any of us, I'm sure, the gravity of their sin. He was to be the Savior, the Messiah was. He was to come in and overthrow Rome. He was to liberate them. He was to do all of these things. In their mind's eye, they had always looked for the Messiah. It had been predicted in the prophets in the Old Testament, and this was their hope. They had put him to death, and they knew that judgment was coming. They said, what shall we do? Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a huge statement. First of all, he calls them to repentance. He calls them to repentance. Millard Erickson writes that real repentance is sorrow for one's sin because of the wrong done to God and the hurt inflicted upon him. This sorrow is accompanied by a genuine desire to abandon that sin. In the case of true repentance, there is regret over the sin, even if the sinner has not suffered any unfortunate personal effects because of it, unquote. It is both the gift of God and the turning from sin to Christ. Peter calls them to repent and to be baptized to be baptized, to publicly display their allegiance to Christ as a follower of Christ, and that would come at a huge price tag for them. It would declare, number one, that the religious leaders were wrong to crucify Jesus. It would declare that they would recognize Jesus not as a blasphemer as they had painted him to be. It would declare that Jesus was who he said he was, was a son of God, God himself, And it would not be merely a change of their faith, but it would be a renunciation of 
their heritage to follow Jesus. You know, many years ago, I remember having a, a, a Christian classmate when I was in seminary who was a Jew. He was a Jew. He had, he had come to know the Lord, and he told the story of his conversion, his testimony. And he would tell what would typically be the response. His family had seen him as turning away from everything, turning his back on his own people, turning his back on his heritage, turning his back from what they, they, what they, what they, what they had great, great uh, pride in was that they were monotheists. They only worshiped God, one God, the great Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that God was one God, the thing that a, a, a Jewish mother would whisper into the ear of her child every day before they went to sleep, that God is one They would be turning their back on all of that to turn to what they viewed Christians to be, polytheists, worshiping three gods. But they didn't understand the doctrine of the Trinity, but it would be an abandonment of everything, everything that they stood for. So Jews who would become Christians would be often ostracized. Now, at first, they would find great favor, the text tells us, but they would soon find that they would be ostracized soon persecuted, soon disowned, not allowed perhaps to have some of the privileges other Jews would have. And many of their family relationships would be severed. The businesses would suffer later to give their lives for their faith, these new Christians would be. And it would be there for everyone to see. Someone was baptized in public, these Jews as they would be, as a follower of Jesus. This is what was commanded by Jesus, but they, they were told by Peter, repent and be baptized. But it would come at a tremendous cost, just like those who would be baptized in countries that persecute Christians. It would come at a tremendous cost. And yet we will see that they decided to follow the Lord. Many years ago, when I was in college, I had a friend who had recently become a Christian and was talking to me about being baptized. He knew what God had commanded in his word. He knew that it was a clear command of God. And he knew that it was a matter of obedience. But his parents told him, well, it's okay for you to go to church, and okay, we permit you to go to fellowship, but if you were to get baptized, you would be disowned. The parents were of another religion. They would kick him out of the house because he was still living there, and he was in a great quandary. What should he do? And we talked about that, and he didn't know where he would go, and he was torn because he was still living at home. What would you have told him to do? What would you told him to do if he came to you and asked you, what should he do? Or what would you do yourself if your parents were to say that to you? Some would say, well, don't get baptized because you'll lose your relationship with your parents. You'll live with them and be able to minister to them and witness to them, and you won't lose that relationship. You and your parents, just wait. Wait until whenever, five years, ten years. Don't wreck any chance of sharing the gospel with them. Well, a short while later, I remember him telling me that he had made his decision. And his decision was that he would get baptized because he wanted to obey God. That is why. And I can still remember that day that he was baptized. It was in a church similar to this size and layout. And I remember when he decided that he was going to go, and he was standing right there in the, in the back baptistry. And I remember that day very distinctly because in the second and third row, right over there, sat his entire family, his parents, his siblings, their spouses, and he was able to give his testimony and share the gospel so that they would all hear of the transforming power of God's grace. Not only that, they ended up not disowning him. He continued to live at home, and there was no problem that I know of in their relationship. And what a blessing when we choose to obey God rather than fear the circumstances if we were to obey. 
I can imagine for these Jews it would be the same thing. They would perhaps fear the persecution, or they would fear their, their, how others might see them, but it is not about them. Baptism is not about them. It is about God. It is about the proclamation of desiring to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, because their faith would be out in the open. And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, some groups, when we look at this particular verse, and we'll look into it a little more deeply here, because some groups look at this particular verse as a key verse for what they believe and call baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration. And it is the belief that a person needs to be baptized in order to be saved. In other words, they will teach that baptism is a requirement. If you want to be saved, if you want to have eternal life, you have to be baptized. And they will point to this verse and they'll say, look, Peter says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You want to have forgiveness of your sins? You better repent and be baptized. That's the line of thinking. Well, that is simply not true. We look at other passages of scriptures, for example, an easy to remember one is one where you think of the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross turned to Jesus, and he says to Jesus in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. No, this man was not going to go to hell, he was going to be with Christ in paradise. Obviously, he hanging on the cross never was baptized. Secondly, there are other examples of those who received the Holy Spirit, they were baptized into the church, and thus saved, and yet not baptized yet, such as Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. They were saved, and then subsequently, they received water baptism. Thirdly, there is a principle in the Bible called Analogia Scriptura, or the analogy of Scripture. When you're studying the Bible and you are applying the principles of biblical hermeneutics or interpreting the Bible, there's a principle that simply states that, that Scripture will not contradict other passages of Scripture if it is correctly interpreted. If it is correctly interpreted, and we see that, of course, in many passages, we won't take the time today, but many passages teach that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works of any type, not of baptism, not of any type of external work. Fourthly, we look and see Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14 to 17. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14 to 17, there is a lot of division in the church, and Paul states this. He says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For those of you who fret your memory is disappearing, you can take comfort in that verse. For Christ did not send me, he says, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. It is clear that Paul didn't baptize many people and explicitly states, Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, it begs the question, if baptism were a requirement for salvation, why does Paul minimize it so much in his ministry? After all, that's part and parcel of what is important to those who would say that they believe that one needs to be baptized in order to be saved. So then, how do you answer the question when they point out Acts chapter 2, verse 38 from the text itself? Well, all of it hinges on this little word, for. The name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Some of you in your translations, such as the NASB, might have a little comma after the word repent uh, in order to somehow perhaps communicate to the casual reader that that's something different. But you don't find the comma in the Greek there. But it hinges on this preposition for. 
Now, the word for in the Greek is the word ace, and it can mean one of two things. Even in the English language, it can mean one of two things. It can mean in order that or because of. In order that or because of. So, for example, if you're uh, helping someone, your mother or your wife, uh, prepare for dinner and there is a loaf of French bread that you need to cut, and someone hands you a knife, a nice serrated knife, and say, it says to you, this is for cutting the bread. Does it mean that it's for in order that, or does it mean because of? Well, it means this knife is for in order that you can cut the French bread. On the other hand, if you're driving home from church today and you're on I-90 and you get pulled over by the police and because you're doing something that is illegal and he hands you a ticket and he says, this is for speeding. Is he saying that this ticket is in order that you can speed more? Or is it because you are speeding down the freeway? It means because of. So it can mean one of two different things. Now, when you look at the text here, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for. Is it in order that you might have forgiveness of sins? Or does it mean because of the forgiveness of sins? Now, in the Greek, it doesn't necessarily say. That is why you look at other scriptures. It can be interpreted either way. So you look at other scriptures as we have. We look at the thief on the cross. We look at Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We look at passages like Ephesians 2, which speak of salvation by grace alone and not of work so that no one can boast. We look at Paul's statement. We then understand this passage to mean, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ because of of the forgiveness of your sins. So, Peter's message is clear. They say, what shall we do? They're guilty of crucifying the Messiah. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Turn from your sins and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Who are the far off? Ephesians tells us, Paul writes in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's speaking for you, he says, the Jews, for your children, the descendants of the Jews, but for those who are far off. That includes everyone else, the Gentiles. That inclusive of you and I and uh, everyone else whom the Lord would call to himself. End of verse 39. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. God calls people to himself. MacArthur writes in his commentary and notes, quote, It presents the necessary balance in his statement in verse 21. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. A biblical view of salvation does not exclude either human responsibility or divine sovereignty, but allows them to remain in tension. We must resist the attempts to harmonize what Scripture does not, content in the knowledge that there is no ultimate contradiction in God's mind. So, in salvation, we are to call upon the Lord, and God calls those to himself, both, as we see. Then verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them. You see, Peter kept on, kept on encouraging them with many other words, and he goes on. If you were to read this sermon, you would take about three minutes to read it. And that's not how long his sermon was. There were many other words. He says, be saved from this perverse generation. And what was the response? Verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized. And on that day were added about 3,000 souls. Instant megachurch. No flashy banners. No ice cream feed. No slick marketing. No upbeat music or mood-altering lights. Simply the power of the Holy Spirit bringing people to conviction by means of the truth and converted them. That day, 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 baptized. No hidden Christians. That is how God works. It is God who works to save, to call people. And he saves the lost the message of the gospel as they respond. And these were the very first Christian converts. 
This is the very first Christian church, and it escapes people. It escapes people that the church is composed of believers, those who received the word, those who repented, those who were baptized, those who were the souls. These are the people. They are indicative of Christians. There were 3,000 souls that were saved. It is composed of those who were saved. Now, to many of you, I'm sure it is obvious, but I remember one person years ago stating to me how proud they were that something like a third or a half of their church was non-Christian. To some, it's not obvious that the church is to be composed of people who are saved. So, what does the very first church look like? We'll look at the very first church fellowship. Very first church fellowship. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All right? There's a very significant number of characteristics to note here, and we probably won't finish this section today. We'll continue it next week. But verse 42 points out four things in in particular that they did. They were continually devoting themselves. This was what they did. These first 3,000 believers, the verb is a present active participle, meaning this was current, this was regular, ongoing activity. For these thousands of new believers, they were devoting themselves to these things. They were not, as I mentioned in Sunday school, these CEO Christians, right? Christmas, Easter-only Christians. No, they were not casual churchgoers. They were committed. They were regular. They were ongoing. They were dedicated, true believers. Number one, they dedicated to themselves the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Now, in the early church, it was not as if everyone had a Bible, like most, if not all of you do. The primary source of spiritual instruction was other than through the Holy Spirit and the Old Testament scriptures, but of the apostolic instruction. They had been taught by the Lord Jesus, and they were passing on that teaching. And that was a primary importance. That was a primary importance, the teaching of the Word of God. And Paul also reminds his young disciples, his young protégés, both Titus and Timothy, the importance of teaching the Word of God. He says to Timothy, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that is the last letter that he was uh, to write. It was to his disciple whom was pastoring at the church of Ephesus, and Paul saw his own life coming to an end, a letter from an apostle who was going to leave this earth. He could see it, and he writes to him in 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 3, I solemnly charge you. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. This is a very serious thing, Timothy. By his appearing in his kingdom, this is what you're to do. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to hear their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. There are many people who don't care much for sound doctrine. They don't care much for biblical truth. They don't care for Bible study. The church is a place where they might find good uh, relationships or maybe they might find other things that might serve them, whatever it might be. But Paul tells Timothy, this is what you're to do. You're to preach the word of God because there will be a time when people will not endure sound doctrine anymore. In Titus, to Titus, whom he had also discipled and told Titus, he was going to pastor out in Crete, that the elders, a qualification of the elders, chapter 1, verse 9 of Titus, hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine, a positive aspect, and to refute those who contradict. An elder needs to be one who knows how to handle the word of God, to refute those who contradict, and to exhort and encourage in things that are sound and true. He also reminds Timothy early on, in Timothy chapter, First uh, Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. The public and the primary focus of the ministry of the church, first and foremost listed here, is the proclamation of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, 
the teaching of the apostles, which is written down for us here in the scriptures. It is the important and, and one aspect that is not negotiable, that the ministry of the Word of God is to be primary. In the book entitled Preaching, the author notes, quote, that seeker-sensitive preaching fosters people who are consumed with their own well-being. When you tell people that the church's primary ministry is to fix for them whatever is wrong in this life, to meet their needs, help them cope with their worldly disappointments, and so on, the message that you're sending is that their mundane problems are more important than the glory of God and the majesty of Christ. Again, that sabotages true worship. In other words, those that focus on, well, what will meet the needs of the people? What will, what will somehow meet the needs of those that are here? What will cater so that others will come to listen rather than focusing on the glory of God and the majesty of Christ preaching the word and minimizing that of preaching which has been relegated in many, many writings that it should not be very long? Well, that sabotages true worship. Because why? It's focused on self. It is focused on self. It says to the person, come here. Church will fix your problems, give you a happier life, give you what you want, and tune up whatever you need every so often so that you can be on the road in what you need. And it's all about you. That's what worship is. And it fosters this idea that it is some sort of consumer item, that we come, if it's good, if it's not, well, maybe not. I can't imagine, as I've shared before, back in the Old Testament times, somebody coming with their family and a little lamb would be a, sufficient for ten people, all their whole ten, ten children, or a wife and nine children, and they all go and bring their, their lamb, little lamb that they've raised, this unblemished lamb to the priest, and the priest takes out his sacrificial knife, and he sacrifices that, ni- that, that little lamb on behalf of them, and it goes up in flames, foom! And then their kids walk away from that sacrifice of worship and say, I didn't get anything out of that. That wasn't very exciting. They should at least turn out the lights so maybe the flames would be bigger. Or what more is there? Or I don't like this antiphonal singing from the Psalms. Whatever it might be, many times people look at worship, not at the exaltation of God, but at me. What did I get out of that? How can this church help me? What do you have to offer? What kind of programs do you have? It's not about God. It is about me, the consumer says. But it's not about us. It is about what have we to bring to the Savior in our praise? What have we to bring to the Savior in our attention to His Word? And what is God saying such that I can change to be more like the Savior and give glory to God for that? It is about God to ask, was God pleased with my heart today? Was God pleased by my praise of Him? Was God made great by my attitude? Did I come to serve Him by serving others? Was I here for myself? One commentator notes, a believer should count it a wasted day when he does not learn something new from or is not deeply enriched by the truth of God's Word. The early church sat under the teaching ministry of the apostles whose teaching, now written on the pages of the New Testament Scriptures, is to be taught by all pastors. Scripture is food for the believer's growth and power, and there is no other The church today ignores the exposition and application of Scripture at its peril. And the warning of Hosea to Israel suggests, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Hosea 4.6 The church cannot operate on truth. It is not taught. Believers cannot function on principles they have not learned. Unquote. So the teaching of the Word of God was central in the early church. It is to be central in our ministry today. It is to be central in all that we do. Secondly, 
The early church fellowshiped, fellowshiped. Chapter 2, verse 42. The word for fellowship is the word koinonia. It means partnership or sharing. We're created to be in fellowship. We're created to be in relationship with other believers. We're saved for that purpose, to be in relationship with other believers. But it's not always true in a consumer society such as ours. In his book, quote, entitled Dare to Live Now, Bruce Larson says, quote, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart a desire to know and be known to love and be loved, and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers, unquote. God intends that we be in relationship with others. True biblical fellowship, though, can only be found in the body of Christ. Those who are part of the church have fellowship with God, with one another, positionally, and they are to express that practically as well. And there are two important metaphors in the New Testament, two important metaphors in the New Testament related to fellowship and our relationship with one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, it's the metaphor of the body, that the church is as a body. And number two, the church is like a family, like a family. We are part of the body of Christ, as 1 Corinthians 12, 12 tells us. For even as the body is one, yet has many members... And all of the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The body has many members. Paul reminds the Corinthians, some may have be like eyes, some may be like ears, some may be like the hands, some may be like the feet, etc., that type of idea. Every person is part of the body of Christ. Every individual is important. Every individual has their function. Everyone is needed in the body. You need me, I need you, you need one another. In our society where it's so autonomous, with the idea that, well, I don't need anybody, I can do it all myself, I'm independent, I don't need accountability, I don't want to, I don't have to do I'll just do this or whatever it may be, that is not a being a part of the body. That is not functioning as God has intended. Secondly, we are a part of God's family. When we talked about the doctrine of adoption, we come into the family of God. It says in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who received him, all who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. We are children of God, and we have brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are children of God. And just as a family does, a body does, only functions properly in the context of meaningful relationship, meaningful fellowship. True fellowship is not just simply attending or showing up. I mean, what would it be like if you had a family and all that your family did was come and eat dinner and no one said anything to anybody else and that's it. They just ate and left. That's all. No thank you. No how are you. No what can I pray for you about, etc., etc. That's all you ever did with no relationship. No, true fellowship is expressed in meaningful relationships. And in the New Testament, true fellowship is expressed in the one another's of the New Testament. In the one another's of the New Testament, where there is mutual care and concern through mutual accountability. These are many that are listed here in the New Testament, such as serve one another, Galatians 5.13, or accept one another in the book of Romans, or forgive one another, or greet one another, or bear one another's burdens, or be devoted to one another, or to honor one another, or to teach one another, or to submit to one another, or encourage one another, or love one another. That kind of meaningful fellowship can only be done when you're around other believers, 
other believers who in the context of the church family grow and can express true fellowship. You cannot do that by yourself. You cannot do that just by yourself. These one another's are others-oriented. Are others-oriented. And in today's society where everyone is so, so autonomous, I don't need someone else. I don't want to, in fact. They're kind of strange or I'm shy or whatever it means. God has created us as a part of the body of Christ where we are to be in relationship to one another. So there's no place where Jesus would say, well, you know what? You all don't have to be with me or together or anything like that. No. We come and we fellowship and true fellowship thinks, how can I be a blessing? How can I serve? How can I care for? How can I encourage? How can I teach? How can I bless someone else? True fellowship is about people, about loving people who are believers, who are your brothers and sisters, who are your family. Serving people, you might not know them, but you serve, you encourage them, whether you know them or not. Helping one another to grow in Christ, because that is why we come together as a body. Do you ever go to a group or a Bible study or, or some event with the express purpose in your mind's eye, thinking, you know what, I want to go so I can be a blessing this topic may not be something that I might learn much from because I've learned it before, but you know what? I want to be there for someone else. I want to be there for somebody else because, you know, who knows? Somebody else might be hurting. Somebody else might need prayer. Somebody else might need to be loved. Somebody else might just need somebody to talk with. And I want to go, not because the program or whatever it may be is all about me and what can I get out of it or if it serves me or if I like it or whatever... I want to go because I want to bless, because I'm a part of the body. They need me. They need me. I need them. Do we say, I've not come to be served, but to serve? Or do we say, I've come because I want to be served? And if I'm not served, I won't come? Hebrews 10, 24 tells us, let us consider how we might stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're in the last days, Peter says. We're in the last days. Come to the Savior. And when you do, this church of 3,000 drew together. And as we see the day drawing near, well, let's encourage one another. You know, one of the hindrances of true fellowship in the church, perhaps, is our new age of digital media. Our new age of digital media. The New York Review and John Jacob Weisberg, in an article, We Are Hopelessly Hooked, tells us that Americans spend an average of five and a half hours, five and a half hours a day with digital media, more than half of that time on mobile devices, in a recent survey, female students at Baylor reported using their cell phones an average of 10 hours a day. We check our phones 221 times a day, an average of every 4.3 minutes. That would have been about five times during the sermon. <laughs> this number would actually be too low, the article says. This was an article written just last month. Our transformation in devices people has happened with unprecedented Unprecedented suddenness. The first touchscreen-operated iPhones went on sale. Do you remember when? June 2007. Followed by the first Android-powered devices the following year. Smartphones went from 10% to 40% market penetration faster than any other consumer technology in history. And yet today, not carrying a smartphone indicates eccentricity, social marginalization, or old age. You'll see people in third world countries, you know, I see pictures of people in China, you know, these ladies with, you know, they're still carrying things on this, you know, to carrying their water to wherever, and they have this little hat on and they're talking on a smartphone. <laughs> the article continues, what does it mean to shift overnight from a society in which people walk down the street looking around to one in which people walk down the street looking at machines? 
We wouldn't always be clutching smartphones if we didn't believe they've made us safer, more productive, less bored, and useful. At the same time, smartphone owners describe feeling frustrated and distracted. Note this. Nearly half of 18 to 29-year-olds said they use their smartphones to, quote, avoid others around you. You ever do that? I'm bored. I, I won't go up to anyone because I don't know them. But I'll pull out my phone and pretend I'm doing something. How many times used to be that I would go to a bus stop when we used to ride the bus, and there'd be people, and it'd be wonderful. You could just strike up a conversation about this or about that. But now you go to a bus stop, and everybody's looking at their little smartphone, and you feel like you're going to be interrupting them of something if you do. How many times I remember riding the bus to work downtown Seattle and being able to strike up a conversation with somebody I would hope that would sit next to me when now they use it to avoid talking with people. True fellowship occurs in interacting with people, real-life interaction, and sometimes social media puts a fake veneer to hide behind. So these 3,000 individuals... They came to know Christ. They heard the message of the Messiah that it was Jesus, and they were convicted to the heart because the Messiah had been crucified. They were guilty. And number three, number three, judgment was coming. Peter tells them to repent and be baptized, and they did. And instantly, 3,000 souls were saved. And the church was marked by the priority of the Word of God and the priority of fellowship. And the question for you and I perhaps today is, are those our priorities today? Are those your priorities that you value the Word of God and did you value the fellowship of believers in your own life? And we'll look at the other characteristics in the week to come. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord in heaven, you have granted to us, Lord, this precious church, this wonderful body of believers. And Father, what a privilege it is to serve here, to know them, to know their heart. They desire, Lord, to grow. They desire, Lord, to be all that you want them to be. And by your grace, we pray that you would help us, Lord, as a church, to place a priority on the word which you have given to us and on the fellowship, the precious fellowship we share. In Jesus' name, amen.